turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 24, or it can be found in your worship folder. Psalm 24 is one of the psalms that is prophetic in pointing to Palm Sunday. Now, we've read the passage from John. It's in other Gospels, of course. And you know that the the last week, this is the entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And he's told his apostles on several times, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to give my life. And they're like, "Uh, I don't get it. Uh, But they will. They will. Um, Fully one-third of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if each of those Gospels is devoted to this last week of the life of Jesus, Fully one half of the Gospel of John is devoted to these seven days. So you can see just in in the economics of, in the economy of God's word, how important these seven days are. Um, They are eternally important. So if you are able, would you stand with me as we turn to Psalm 24. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to this truth that we would understand it, that these things were planned long before and Christ in fulfillment of your perfect will has entered Jerusalem, not as the conquering king, but as the servant to come to bring salvation even to the likes of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 24, this is a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob. This is God's word, inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Well, every Palm Sunday, we kind of reenact with the kids and the palms as they come in uh, as best we can what happened on that day in Jerusalem. The palm branches were waved. They were laid before the Lord Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Then they saw the king himself riding on a donkey, the symbol of royal authority coming in peace. The question is, who is the king? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. So this is what happened on the first Palm Sunday when Jesus entered in Jerusalem, gentle and riding on a donkey. In God's providence, while Jesus is making this triumphal entry, we have to understand that at the same time that he comes in, in the temple, the priests are reading Psalm 24. Now you think, oh, Rand, well, how do you know that? Okay, Is it just a cool thing to say? No, this is what it was. From James Montgomery Boyce, pastor at Presbyterian Pastor, he was up in Philadelphia, Ancient rabbinical sources tell us that in the Jewish liturgy, Psalm 24 was always used in worship on the first day of the week. First day of the week is Sunday. 
So putting these facts together, we can assume that Psalm 24 were the words being recited by the temple priest at the very time Jesus mounted on a donkey and ascended the approach to Jerusalem. Nothing happens by chance. All of this, every event was laid out for us in accordance with God's plan and his perfect will. We see in Psalm 24 these last Four verses, 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, doors, that the King of glory may come in. Well, who is this King of glory? It's the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. It's repeated again. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now, the context of Psalm 24, um, we can kind of, uh, we're we're not making assumptions. We're pretty sure about when it was written and why it was written because it's about God making his royal entrance into Jerusalem. So most scholars think, as, as it's listed here, that it was written by David. And it was written on the occasion when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem. Now, remember the Ark of the Covenant? You've seen the movie, so you know all about it. It's about this big, okay? And, and the dimensions are laid out for us in the Old Testament, so we do have actually some idea. But it was a chest that contained the Ten Commandments, and that is where the glory of the Lord dwelt, in the tabernacle, in the temple, on top of the Ark. That's the mercy seat. The high priest would sprinkle the blood of atonement there. It's where the God's glory was among his people. So the Ark of the Covenant led God's people, remember, across the Jordan. They were there on on the other side of the Jordan. There's the promised land. The Lord has said, this is your spot. Go and take it. Um, But the river is in flood stage at that moment. So it's right up to the bank. There's no easy way to get into it. And and he says, okay, the priests go first with the Ark. and, And what do they do? The Lord said, get in. So they went in. And at the moment they stepped in, the flow of the river was stopped Everybody went by, and the ark led them in there. And that was great. The ark led uh, around the Battle of Jericho and the, the uh, victories that the people saw until they said, well, it's, they, their view changed of the ark and became more of like a talisman, a lucky charm, something that, hey, we got the ark, we're guaranteed to win. No. So First Samuel 4 and 5 Uh, They take the ark out and they they battle against the Philistines and they lose. Their hearts were not right. They were no longer following God. The ark is taken there. And the Philistines have the ark. And so uh, they put it in a room before their God. It says Dagon, okay, and the statue. And they put the ark there because that's what you did. You made somebody else's God subservient to yours. And they come back in the morning and Dagon, this statue of a God, is face down. And they're like, oh, how did that happen? Well, I don't know, but let's pick him up. So who has to pick up their God? Okay, but that's what they did. They picked him up. The next day they came in, he was face down again before the ark. The third day, his head and his hands and his feet were over in the doorway. Okay, this is just a statue. And the Philistines said, we've got to get rid of this thing. All right, so they sent it off to one of their cities. Um, uh, first they sent it to Ashdod, and they, they sent it to Gath. And at each of these cities, once the ark 
came into the city, people began to die, die of disease and these tumors. Well, Ashdod had it first, and they said, we've got to get rid of it. They sent it over to Gath. It happened to Gath, and they said, we've got to send this thing back to Israel, back to Israel. So it goes back, and David says, hey, it's been at this guy's house, um, uh, 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 yeah, yeah, who was his house? Was it? Obed. Obed? Thank you. I'm, I'm blanking here. At Obed's house, and and he's being blessed. So let's take it into Jerusalem. So they put it on a cart and they haul it off. The bad mistake because you remember Uzzah put his hand up when the ark when the oxen stumbled. He was going to keep it out of the mud, but as soon as he touched the ark, he was dead because it was better for the things of God to fall into the mud than touched by sinful human hands. God said, this is how you transport it, but they didn't listen. So it went back, the house, the house blessed it, and by this time, God is, is, or David is pretty sure we know what to do. We're going to bring it into Jerusalem again. Hence the writing of Psalm 24. The psalm begins with the praising of God as the Lord is there. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. He founded it upon the seas, established it upon the waters. So it wasn't enough for David in in the first lines to say that the entire earth belonged to the Lord. He had to add, and all of its fullness belonged to him. So Charles Spurgeon, who's written you know, that's like 11 or 12 volumes at least on the Psalms, writes, the fullness of the earth may mean its harvest, its wealth, its life, its worship. In all these senses, the Most High God is possessor of all. The earth is full of God. He made it full and he keeps it full. So these opening verses are showing us that God has absolute ownership over everything in this world. He is the creator of all. He is the owner of all. Whether it is us, whether it is rocks, the trees, the birds, the cockroaches, for whatever reason he made them, okay, they are his. They are his. He claims authority over everything and everyone. Abraham Kuyper said, in the total expanse of the human life, there is not a single square inch of which Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not declare that is mine. It all belongs to Christ. As the creator of everything, he has the right to claim it and to rule over it. Now, when people disagree about the origins of uh, the world, they're not simply arguing about how it came into existence, but who is in charge of everything that is here as well. Who has sovereign rule? Me or God? Even over my life, even over the stuff in front of me, Who has sovereign rule? So if God is not our creator, then he can't be king. And that makes me the end of all things. We don't want that. According to Romans 1, everything in the entire universe is clearly made by God. You can go out of these walls and look at creation and come to the conclusion that God exists from what we see of how it has been brought together, the complexities of the things of the world. So he has claim over everything and every single person that we see. Even those who reject him, even those who say, I don't believe in God, he still has authority over them. Remember Philippians chapter 2, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
It doesn't say that they will all believe. It says they will all bow and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Jesus is not just Lord of Christians, not just Lord of the things that we understand, uh, the church life and things like that. He's Lord over all. He's not in here in, in what David is telling us. He's not just king of the Jews. He's king of the whole earth. Again, I'm going to quote, quote Spurgeon here. For he has founded it upon the seas. It is God who lifts up the earth from out of the sea, the one who created it, so that the dry land, which otherwise might in a moment be submerged, as in the days of Noah, is kept from the floods. The hungry jaws of oceans would devour the dry land if a constant fiat of omnipotence did not protect it. If God withdrew his sovereign hand over any aspect of this world, it would deteriorate into chaos and be destroyed. He has established it upon the floods. The world is the Lord's because from generation to generation he preserves it and upholds it. When you open your eyes this morning, what did you do? You opened your eyes. I told the cat to get away. That's the first thing I did this morning. Uh, you go, you take a breath. How are you able to take that breath? Okay, It's because the Lord's hand has enabled you to do that. And you say, no, Rand, it's the functions of my body, and, and this is just simply what I do. Uh, if we believe in the sovereignty of God, our very next breath is up to him. Our very next word is up to him. So David asks this question, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place, meaning be in his presence, in his temple? So who has permission to enter into the presence of the king of the universe, the one who has rule over all things? You look at your hands and, and you think of your heart, and you say, oh, I could never do that because the demands are pretty clear here clean hands, and a pure heart. Oh, are my hands really clean? Is my heart really pure? So to come into the presence of the Lord, it requires clean hands, outward obedience, that's what that means, a pure heart, inward integrity. We all know our hearts, okay? We know what we're like. And this is not referring to you know, washing our hands. It's not referring to ritual purity. It's not even referring to keeping God's commands. A pure heart refers to the life of the soul. So, so God requires integrity from us. He requires obedience from us. And we think, well, when was the last time I was perfectly obedient? And I, I can say it, it has not happened. Okay? Remember that Jesus called the Pharisees, who worked very hard to make sure that their life was in complete obedience to every law from the Old Testament. He called them whitewashed tombs. Man, you look good on the outside, but inside, what's there? Dead bones. Death. Okay. The second half of verse 4, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. It's talking about idolatry there. It has to deal with the worship of false gods and telling the truth in human relationships. So we, what we have here is we have to love God, worship him first, and we have to love our neighbor. Well, we've heard this before. Okay, The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God. What's the next one? Love your neighbor as yourself. 
outward obedience, inward integrity, love of God, love of nature, they receive the blessings of the Lord. Well, how can we possibly meet this standard? If I've never been able to keep this now just by reading it, how can I possibly keep it? Look at verse 5. He will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. It is God who provides our ability to do these things. It is God who washes us clean. And it's not on the basis of what I do. It's on the basis of what Christ has done. See, we receive these things. We don't go out and get them. We don't go out and earn them. We receive them. It is God who does the vindicating here. God who makes us righteous. And he's not making us righteous because we do these things. He's making us righteous in order to do these things. And to enable us to have clean hands and a pure heart. To obey him. To love him. To love our neighbor. They come from God, our Savior. Again, Charles Spurgeon, it's possible that you're saying, well, that's standard. I'll never enter heaven with the clean hands and a pure heart. Look then to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who has already climbed the holy hill. He's entered as the forerunner of those who trust him, follow in his footsteps, rest upon his merit and his alone. He rides triumphantly into heaven, and you shall ride there too if you trust him. But how can I get the character described, you ask? The Spirit of God will give you that. He will create in you a new heart and a right spirit. Faith in Jesus Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit. All those things come after. So again, we come to the last stanza here. 7 to 10. Now, this is uh, what we call in the church antiphonal. Okay? One group says one thing, another group responds. And we have groups singing this thing, the questions and the answers. The choir sings outside the city gates, calling on behalf of the king, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, when the king of glory may come in. Now, you may think, well, this is kind of strange. Don't they know the king is coming? Part of this is ceremonial. We see this in, in England in, in past years um, when the king would arrive, when the king of England wished to enter the city of London through what's called the Temple Bar. The gate was closed, and the herald demands entrance. He says, open the gate, he demands from the outside. And the voice on the inside says, who is there? And the voice outside, it's the king of England. And the king passes and everybody gets excited. Well, the same type of thing is here. Lift up your heads. This is, this is probably a, a, a Levite choir on the outside singing these things. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Then you have the watchman inside. And he says, well, who is the king of glory? Okay? And the answer from outside, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So they'd say it again, lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. It's not like, well, they didn't hear us the first time. This is for emphasis. And he cries once again, who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. 
So really, what Psalm 24 is talking about is the Lord of all creation is the King of glory. He is the one who enters Jerusalem, gee, just like Jesus did. He is the one who comes on Palm Sunday to cries of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But you know, that entrance into Jerusalem kind of pales in comparison to his entrance final days of heaven according to hebrews 1 when jesus returned to heaven after his ascension he took his seat at the right hand of the father after he had provided purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven ephesians chapter 1 says that after god raised jesus from the dead he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only of this age, but of the age to come. This is the King of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, who entered Jerusalem humbly on a donkey. But we have to be mindful. Those, and we've heard this before, those screams of Hosanna and cries of Hosanna just a few days later may have been the same people yelling for his crucifixion. We have to do more than just just know these things. We have to do more than just hear these things. We actually have to believe them. We actually have to pattern our life after them. So the fact that Christ came into Jerusalem in a way that was foretold long ago, that he is this king of glory, We hear that, but there's just one final place that Jesus has to come. It's here. He has to make his entrance into your heart. He's got all rule. He's got all authority. He's got all power. He calls us to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He says, today's the day of salvation. Don't do it tomorrow because you don't want to almost believe. You want to believe. This is the king of glory. This is the one that we will see in the coming days who gave his life for us. No one took it. He gave it up for us. And then next Sunday, I don't want to give it away, but you know what? That tomb's going to be empty. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, who is this King of glory? It's the Lord Almighty. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We look around the world, and and not much the world holds to these things. Not much the world believes that you're sovereign over all of your creation. But here we have seen this fact to be true. Here in your word is laid out for us how much you care for the likes of us that you would send your son into this world to pay for the debt that we could never pay for, to atone for our sin that, that some of us are, may not even know we have. Not only We don't think about it, but yet when we're quiet, in those moments when our voice is the only one we hear there in our head and our heart, We know something's missing, something's wrong. We know we have a longing for you. For you have made us. 
you have shaped and formed us, and now you call us by name, and you draw us unto yourself, that our eyes might be open to the King of glory, that our eyes might be open to the one who rode into Jerusalem so long ago to atone for my sin. Lord, speak to our hearts today that we would not be almost persuaded about this truth, but that we would be persuaded that it would be real in our lives and you would change our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.